W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Dear listeners, you are tuned into WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I am your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. It's a pleasure to have you aboard, and so without further delay, let's initiate our intrepid investigation of interreligious, intercultural, interdimensional interlocution. In other words, let's get into some interfaith-ish! Dear listeners, how would you grade your religious literacy? Would you say you have a basic knowledge of the tradition you grew up in? What about the religious practices of your friends and your neighbors? Would you be able to answer some basic trivia about the key tenets of the world's religions? Relax, dear listeners, there's no pop quiz today, but chances are if you're like the majority of Americans, your level of religious literacy is pretty low. Even about your own tradition, according to Professor Stephen Prothero's 2007 book on religious literacy, fewer than half of us can even identify that Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and only one-third know that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And our proficiency completely falls off a cliff when it comes to Buddhism, Hinduism, and even Islam, a religion that is referenced every day in major news headlines. If you've listened to Interfaithish already, you know that contributing to our collective religious literacy is a big reason of why we have this show. It's an educational endeavor, and we all have a lot to learn about our various traditions and how our beliefs influence so many aspects of our society. I certainly have a ways to go myself, and that's why today I've invited two experts who can help us dive into why religious literacy matters and how educating the next generation of leaders about the meaning and application of core constitutional concepts like religious liberty has a direct impact on the future of this American democracy. In studio with me today is Benjamin Marcus, the Religion Literacy Specialist at the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute. Try to fit that onto a business card. Uh, In his day job, Ben examines the intersection of education, religious literacy, and identity formation in the United States. He has developed religious literacy programs for public schools, universities, U.S. government organizations, and private foundations. And he has delivered presentations on religion at universities and nonprofits in the U.S. and abroad. Ben has worked closely with the U.S. Department of, uh, with the U.S. State Department, excuse me, the Interfaith Youth Corps, and the Foundation for Religious Literacy, and the Cambridge Interfaith Program in the United Kingdom, the U.K. And also joining me is Charles Watson Jr., the Associate Director of Education at the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Charles's work is focused on expanding the base of support for religious liberty and engaging the next generation of advocates. He is a veteran of the U.S. Air Force, as well as the former children's director of Buckhead Baptist Church in Atlanta, and previously served as a hospice chaplain resident endorsed by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to have you all with me here in studio today. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks so much. Ben, to start off with you, how would you define religious literacy, and why would you say that this is such an important key component of our education as citizens? Thanks for the question. So I'll start by providing the definition that the American Academy of Religion has offered for religious literacy. The AAR is the largest and most respected learned society for scholars who study religion academically. And in a document from 2010, the way that they define religious literacy is 
the ability to discern and analyze the intersections of religion with social, political, and cultural life. I think that's a really great starting point. The one takeaway I hope listeners um, bring from this conversation is that religious literacy isn't just about the content knowledge that you acquire. So often when we think about religious literacy, we think that we need to memorize lists from different religious traditions. So the five pillars of Islam, the four noble truths, the, the different persons of the Trinity. What I hope that listeners take away is that religious literacy is also about skills, the skills to be able to understand how people construct their own religious identities so that they're able to have conversations about issues that are important to themselves and to other people. Mm -hmm. So what I mean... In the way mean, that you'd be literate in terms of reading an English class and so forth. Exactly, right. So when you're literate in a class, that doesn't mean that you know all of the content of every book in the classroom, it means you know how to pick up the book and understand the text, right? So religious literacy is being able to have a conversation with another person and not presume that you know what they're going to talk about if you know the religious identity that they claim, the affiliation that they claim, but be able to ask the right kinds of questions and listen in a way that allows you to go deeper and understand if they're really committed to the beliefs of a specific religious tradition, if they're more invested in the behaviors that are associated with certain practices in a religious setting or non-religious setting, or if it's really about belonging to a certain community. So we talk about at the Religious Freedom Center, these three Bs, belief, behavior, and belonging. And for me, religious literacy is understanding whether for you in your own life, belief, behavior, or belonging is most important. And when you enter into conversations with others, are they trying to signal to you that when they say, yes, I am religious, or no, I'm not religious, or I'm spiritual, but, but not religious, what are they actually signaling in terms of the relative importance of belief, behavior, and belonging? Mm -hmm. And here in the U.S., why would you say this is a, a particularly important skill to have as we move through the world? There's a lot of research that shows that the religious landscape of the United States is changing dramatically. So I'd love to get a shout, a shout out to our friends at the Public Religion Research Institute. Mm -hmm. They just came out with an incredible survey uh, study of religious life in the United States. And what they're finding is that we're in a really exciting but fraught new age in the U.S. For the first time, Protestant Christians don't make up over 50% of the population we're seeing that there's a, a decline in white uh, Christian uh, Protestantism, whether that's evangelical or mainline Protestantism. We're seeing a growth in the number of unaffiliated Americans. We're seeing an increase, though it's still quite small, of non-Jewish or Christian religious traditions. So as our country becomes more diverse, as we learn more about the, the religious traditions of our neighbors who might come from communities other than our own, it's really important that we have the skills and the knowledge to be able to engage productively with this increasing religious diversity, what Diane, Diana Ack of Harvard might call uh, you know, active pluralism. So diversity is a fact, but how we engage with that diversity is really going to determine the future of our country. Mm -hmm. And Charles, how would you say these things intersect with the notion of religious liberty? Why would it be important for us to, to know about one another in order to, to work for religious liberty, in order to advocate for one another, to be able to stand in our own, um, stand up for our own religious liberty and freedoms here in the U.S.? Um, I think it directly ties in because I feel like there is no such thing as a second-class citizen. And so if all of us have the same rights, and religious freedom is one of those rights, then everybody has to have that right. Mm. So we kind of tie it in by saying, you know, there's no second-class religion. And by knowing about your surroundings and the people that are around you, um, it's sort of inevitable that you are able to work with them, understand them, fight for their rights, because you know if you don't do it for them, it may one day come to you mm -hmm. that you don't have those rights. Mm -hmm. So that equal citizenship really makes a difference when we're talking about uh, understanding religious freedom and why we should try to understand our neighbor and, and know about what they believe. Mm -hmm. Now, Ben, you, you talked about um, one of the, the, the key things when you're, when you're involved with being able to, to um, go through a conversation with someone is, is understanding 
what it is that's motivating them, what, how it is that they're coming to that particular viewpoint, and so forth. And I'm curious for you, how is it that you came to um, be involved with this work in religious literacy? Did you have a strong religious upbringing and, and, and formation as part, of, as part of your youth? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for me, this is both academic and it is personal. So I grew up outside Chicago to a mother who's Roman Catholic from a strong Italian Roman Catholic tradition. And my father was born in New York to a Jewish family and, and identifies as a, as a humanist Jew. And I remember in, in the process of growing up that there was a really productive sometimes fraught, but mostly productive tension between my parents when they were talking about religion in, in our house. And one of my most vivid memories of this productive sort of fraught tension was during my first communion, I was up at, at the altar taking communion and the priest invited the family members of the child who was taking first communion to, to come up to the altar. And my dad decided to, to stay in the pew. And this was something to me, it was my time to shine. You know, I was in the spotlight. And the fact that my dad was was not coming was something that I didn't quite understand. And after afterward, he he came up to me and said, I just want to explain what this means for me as a Jew to be in a Catholic church, the history of of oppression, that the oppression he he faced as a Jew growing up in New York by Christians. And so it got me thinking, why is religion something that's so powerful, something that can be a, a time for celebration, right? Religion helps us celebrate what is good in life, but it can also bring up some really um, difficult traumas. And so I began thinking about religion and its role in history and, and contemporary life in an academic way. And as I went deeper into the academic study of religion, I wanted to understand specifically how people constructed their religious identities. When someone said, I'm religious or I'm not religious, what were they trying to tell you? And I think my parents are really great examples of this. My mom is Catholic. She believes in God. Religion is important, but belief, especially in, in God and, and, and how that orients her life, I think is quite, quite powerful for her. Whereas my dad identifies very strongly as Jewish, but does not believe in God. And so growing up, there were always certain people who told me that I wasn't Jewish because my mother wasn't Jewish, or my father wasn't Jewish because he didn't believe in God, or my mother wasn't a Catholic because she didn't go to Mass all the time. And so I wanted to know why were they claiming these religious affiliations, which I could tell were incredibly important to them, when members of their community didn't recognize them as part of the community? How did they maintain that religious identity in the midst of, of, of doubt from others? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, uh, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking with Ben Marcus with the Religious Freedom Center at um, the museum and uh, Charles Watson Jr. of the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty. So we just heard about uh, Ben's background from a, a mixed uh, family heritage and religious upbringing. Uh, Charles, by contrast, we were just saying that uh, you've got Baptists all over your resume, and uh, so we wanted to hear a little bit about that. What was your upbringing like? And uh, tell us a little bit about, about the Baptist Church. Well, um, the first thing is, I can't speak for the entire Baptist Church, and we'll, <laughs> sure, sure. we'll get into to that uh, <laughs> as a part of who we are as Baptists or people that recognize um, the denomination of, of Baptists. But for me, I grew up in a small town. Um, we were discussing it was four stoplights, and so... It was more stoplights than religion, religions in mm, my town. Wow. Um, so everybody was pretty much Baptist, or, you know, Christian. We did have a, a couple of AME churches, um, a couple of, I would say, Catholic churches that were there, but no synagogues, never, never saw a, a mosque growing up in, in Millen, Georgia. And so for us, the only diversity really in Baptist was I, my mom's church was uh, a missionary Baptist church, and my dad's church was just a Baptist church. And I always used to wonder, well, what's the difference? Right. I, I saw this free will Baptist, and what does that mean? I never knew. Okay. And so I just grew up Baptist because that's what it was. Um, it wasn't until actually going to seminary um, at McAfee School of Theology in Atlanta, Georgia, where I actually learned a little more about what Baptist was. Um, that was my calling. My calling was never to be, oh, I'm, you're going to be a minister I always knew I wanted to go to seminary because I wanted to know more about what I said I believed. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't know once I got to seminary that I was going to learn about my tradition, but also other traditions while I was there. Mm -hmm. And it kind of speaks to the literacy of understanding others to understand who you are. So Mm -hmm. even though Baptist is all up and down my, uh, would you say my resume or anything, uh, I think the Baptist part of me really resonates from learning more about everybody else and then coming to be Baptist. And the reason I say that, uh, Baptists have what most people would qualify as four fragile freedoms that we identify with, Bible freedom, soul freedom, church freedom, and religious freedom. Hmm. So those freedoms are to interpret the Bible how you want to be, to interpret it, the Bible freedom, church freedom, whatever church you want to be in, church autonomy, there's no hierarchy um, in it. So every Baptist church can believe what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. You can join a convention, but you don't have to. You can be, you can stand alone in that mm-hmm. Baptist tradition. Um, your your, your um, religious freedom, that's when, what really captured me about Baptists. When I learned that Baptists actually fought for religious freedom of all, even, you know, back in England, when, you know, Thomas Helwes went against the king, he was like, no, I, hired, I answered to somebody higher than you. This is what I'm going to, it cost him pretty much his, his life, but stood up for that. Here in the United States, Baptists were ber- persecuted for preaching without a license during the colonial days. And so, Unfortunately, some Baptists have forgotten that persecution, and unfortunately, they have started to kind of isolate themselves and say, you know, if you're not like us, then this. What I found in the freedom of being Baptist is understanding that I have an opportunity to grow and understand my faith and my creator more. I have to give somebody else that same opportunity to understand and grow, whether they don't have a faith or they do have a faith. And I'm going to be empowered by that because there's something out there that I don't know. I believe that we're all created by um, our creator. And if our creator created all of us, there's something I can learn about the creator from somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's that open freedom that, that really resonates for me of being Baptist. That, that, that really comes back for being Baptist for me. So I identify in that way because that's how I relate to not only the world, but other people and how I relate to God in that, in that form. And so at the Baptist Joint Committee, it's really important for us to make sure that everybody has religious liberty for all. And that's, that's always our thing, for all. It's not just religious liberty for me. It's religious liberty for all. Um, and so we, we do that and mostly uh, domestic, um, using the First Amendment, using the first 16 words of the First Amendment, using the religious clause, the establishment clause, and, and the free exercise clause. And going back to what I said earlier, making sure that um, there's no second class to that. Everybody has the freedom that the government will not establish a religion that we all have to follow, and the government will allow us to practice whatever religion or not practice whatever religion. Because in our eyes, that was the gift from God. God did not make us robots. God allowed us to worship, not worship, believe, not believe, so why would the government come in and tell us we have to believe something or we have to practice in a certain way? Mm-hmm. Now, there's always caveats to that. I can't, you know, uh, use my religion to hurt Ben. Then we want the government to step in then and say, hey, protect our right. um, civil rights with that. And so for me, it's a, it's a, it's a mixture of a, a lot of things, Jack. It's not just um, religion with that. I, I, I mix civil rights with my Baptist. You know, I mix all of those things together because... To me, it's, it's another human being, and they need to have the same rights that I have. Mm-hmm. So tell us about, you know, about the BJC, about the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty, and what, um, what, what is it that you all do day in and day out, and specifically your, your role there? Okay. Well, we focus on now four major areas. Um, litigation, while we don't um, represent any clients, we write friend-of-the-court briefs to the Supreme Court on um, cases that deal with religious liberty, First Amendment uh, rights of religion. Um, we also monitor bills as they go through the Congress, state and um, uh, federal level to say, is this bill good for religious liberty or bad for religious liberty? We reach out to our constituents and say, hey, you have a representative in your state that believes this, you need to call them, you need to do this, about, uh, talk to them about what's going on with that. And that's a part of our education too. Um, going doing radio shows, talking to uh, colleges and universities about uh, religious liberty and the importance of it. And then our last part is growing into mobilization. 
You know, we're in D.C. We're based in D.C. We're a right. small office. You got but, that nice piece of real estate right on Capitol Hill. <laughs> that, that that helps. That helps. Um, but we, we're we based here, but we have people that believe what we believe all over uh, the nation. And so mobilizing those people to be able to say, hey, this is going on in your area. You go out and do this for this. Or reporting back to us what's going on there so we can have somebody on the ground that's saying that. And so that's what we're building up now with the mobilization and being able to carry that message, um, not only from D.C., but anywhere in the nation for that. So we focus on those. Um, and like I said, we focus on um, particularly just religious liberty. We don't go to the um, moral gambit of other things like other organizations may focus on an issue that's a moral issue. If it doesn't cross the religious liberty and uh, First Amendment with the separation of church and state, we don't deal with it. There's enough going mm-hmm. on in the nation to to keep us occupied in that way. And so just protecting everybody's religious belief or non-religious belief mm-hmm. that they can have that here in the United States. That's the essence of our work. Great. Thank you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking with Charles Watson, Jr. of the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty and Ben Marcus with the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum Institute. So, Ben, you were recently accepted to the uh, Fulbright program. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. And um, you'll be um, you'll be working at the again this intersection of religious and uh, religion and education um, with bringing some of your work to institutions abroad. So tell us a little bit about how this new phase of yours is going to go over the next few years, and and how this um, work is going to expand the work that you've done so far. Sure. So the Religious Freedom Center is dedicated to educating the public about the history, meaning, and significance of interpretations of the religious liberty clauses of the First Amendment. And we try to cultivate three main competencies, so legal literacy about the First Amendment, religious literacy, which we talked about before, and civil dialogue, so that people are able to have informed, respectful conversations about issues that are important to all of us. So we work with different tracks. We work with religious and civic leaders, business leaders, and educators. And I primarily work in our educators track, training and equipping K-12 educators to teach about religion in academically rigorous and constitutionally appropriate ways. So a lot of that work has been domestic so far, but recently we had the opportunity to provide support to the Ministry of Education in Albania. Hmm. Uh, The Minister of Education in Albania reached out to the U.S. Embassy in Tirana and requested support to revise the national curriculum as it relates to religion. And the U.S. Embassy reached out to us at the Religious Freedom Center and asked if we could help. So I recently became a Fulbright specialist and I'll be in Albania in June and we'll be working with the Ministry of Education there not to try to impose what the U.S. does on the Albanian context, because that will not work, Mm. but to share best practices from the United States and say, this is what we do. This is what works in our communities. This is how we engage various stakeholders in the co-construction of curriculum so that it is, again, academically rigorous, but appropriate for the relevant U.S. laws and international law as it relates to religious freedom. And In sharing that information with them, they'll then work with members of their communities, religious communities, civic communities, educators, to create guidelines for how to protect students and teachers and parents' religious freedom rights while teaching about religion in a way that allows uh, different communities to understand one another. And Albania is a really fascinating context because it's an incredibly religiously diverse country. The majority of the population would identify as Muslim in some way with a strong uh, sort of subset of those identifying as Bektashi Muslims. There is a strong Catholic presence in the north of the country and a strong Orthodox Christian presence in the south of the country. They're very proud of the fact that during the Holocaust, Muslims saved many Jews from, uh, from Nazis by hiding them in their homes. And after a very long period of very harsh communism, the country as a whole is quite secular. So you have all these different influences on the religious landscape. And there's a long history of these different religious communities getting along very well with one another. 
So our goal is, is to provide support for teaching about religion, which is something that they haven't done much in schools, without upsetting the, the, the balance, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that there aren't, there aren't problems uh, currently between different religious communities. So that, that's Albania, and we're really excited for this project and really honored to have this opportunity. But our hope is that in providing a, a suite of resources to our friends in the Ministry of Education, that we can then take those and offer them to other countries and say, uh, this is not at all meant as a, a form of imposition. What we want to do is just offer you insight into what we do in the United States when we teach about religion academically. And what do you think the U.S., I mean, especially now at a time where we are are clearly, it's a very um, controversial, we're very, very fraught sort of period right now when it comes to a lot of issues concerning religion and how the U.S., you know, basically represents that to the world. What do you, how do you feel about that image of the U.S., you know, about, as you're about to embark on this trip, particularly to a country who, by, by your account, is, is doing quite well in the arena of religious tolerance and so forth? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think for me, it's a bit of a best of times, worst of times scenario. So there's a lot that's going wrong right now in the United States in terms of how we are respecting or disrespecting members of other religious communities or people of no religion. At the same time, though, there's so much incredible work that's being done in the field, especially of, of religion and education. So we're really pleased that in 2017, the National Council for the Social Studies, NCSS, created, adopted uh, guidelines for teaching about religion in K-12 schools. And this was the first time that a national education organization has done something like this. The American Academy of Religion had guidelines in the past, but it wasn't adopted fully by the education community. To, so to have this new resource from NCSS is, is really powerful, and we're already seeing it affect the education landscape of different states and the District of Columbia. So for us, there is an increased interest right now in teaching about religion in schools in order to promote what we see as a civic virtue, which is the protection of the rights of people of all religions and none, and a civic virtue to be able to understand our neighbors, the people who are in our communities, and, and whether or not theologically we would agree with them or we think that they should convert at the end of the day. The goal here is not a theological one, it's a civic one. Mm -hmm. How do we get along together better. I think there's a really great uh, quote from a, a Catholic theologian that in the United States, our religious freedom principles are not articles of faith, they're articles of peace, right? We don't have to assent to them in, in a, in a faith-based way, although different communities do, but we have to assent to them if we're going to live together in, in an increasingly religiously diverse society. Mm -hmm. So I see right now, we are becoming increasingly diverse. I see that as an exciting uh, thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I see that as strengthening the country. So that's, for me, the best of times. We're, we're becoming more diverse. People are getting to know one another in ways that they haven't in the past. We're seeing an increase in interest in education about religion. And so I think we can be honest when we go into other contexts, into other countries, and say, we haven't gotten everything right, but we also are moving in a direction that I, I am opt, uh, optimistic. I think that we're, we're setting the ground, laying the groundwork for a positive future. Mm -hmm. Terrific. WOWD listeners, why not find and follow your favorite community radio station on social media? Whether you're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we're there with you. Search for Tacoma Radio on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and click to follow us, and you'll be in the loop. You can see the handsome faces of our guests right here in studio today on our Instagram feed shortly enough. This is Inter Interfaith-ish, our bi-weekly show on WOWD 94.3 FM, where we discuss the common ground and differences between our traditions. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and I'm joined today by Charles Watson, Jr. of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. I apologize for getting that wrong earlier in the program. And Ben Marcus with the Religious Freedom Center. 
Um, we've already discussed the work and background of each of our guests in our first half hour. And now for the second half of our show, we turn the mics over to our guests to give them the floor to ask anything that they've wanted to know about each other's traditions and beliefs, things that we may have never asked someone of the tradition before, never known to ask, or just flat out misunderstood. So with that, I'll turn it over to my two guests, Charles and Ben. So I'm always struck by the fact that the work that we do, Charles, the advocacy for religious literacy and religious liberty is always colored by our personal backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So for me, the experience that I mentioned earlier, growing up outside Chicago, the religious communities that I was part of, the schooling that I had, has had a profound influence on, on my perspective about religious liberty and religious literacy. And I was wondering, I know you graduated from the Citadel and you served in the Air Force. Did your time in the military affect your religious identity in any way or your commitment to religious freedom? And if so, how? Oh, most definitely. Uh, military, you know, coming from a small town, military brought me in touch with people that were different from me. You know, you think about it, you think it's maybe only um, racial difference, but religious difference was a big part of it. And people that, it was the first time I met somebody that didn't believe in God you know, in the military. And so for me, it was like, this person is in the military, um, going to fight for the country or for the freedoms of all people. They should have their freedoms, all of them. And religious freedom is at the top of the list of the things they should have. So it really helped me be in contact with those who are different. You know, we live in a, a big country. You know, I'm different from somebody that's in Iowa or Washington State, coming from Millen, Georgia. But we're still American citizens. We're still a part of this country. And so I learned from that diversity. And that really influenced my, not only my religious perspective, but also how I felt the freedoms of those other people should be advocated for. And uh, like I said, I said it earlier, to me, it's, religious liberty is a, is a civil rights issue. If, if you don't have the freedom to have the conscience to believe and think how you want to think and believe how you want to believe, then what other freedoms do you have if you can't have the freedom of the mind? And so military did a, a big, had a big influence on me in making sure that I um, wanted to protect religious liberty for all. It just kind of fell in line that way. Um, as I as I talk to you, Ben, and listen to your story and listen to the diversity in your your own home, uh, I get excited just to see. Oh man, that's, that's that's a lot in there. And so I heard you talk about going, you know, baptism and communion and and different things, and your work with religious literacy and writing curriculums and putting it into schools. I, I wonder why and if you could tell me what makes the public school system the best place to introduce this religious liberty and not in houses of worships and not uh, around the quote-unquote religious places, why why the schools? Yeah, for me it's a bit of a both-and issue. I think our houses of worship, religious leaders, religious community members have a profound duty to protect the rights of themselves and other people. But my interest in public schools is is personal in some ways. I'm a product of a public school in uh, suburban Illinois. But in terms of our national project, creating a community of Americans, public schools are the sites for civic education. I think they are the primary loci for Americans to learn what it means to be American, to learn how we have not lived up to our values as a country, how, what our values as a country are, and how we should strive to live up to those values. And one of those key values, which is enshrined in the First Amendment, is religious liberty for people of all religions and none. If our public schools can't teach young people how to recognize the religious identities of other people, 
how to recognize the role that religion has played in our history and contemporary life in both the constructive aspects of, of the influence of religious communities and also the, the more destructive aspects, then we're setting our children up for failure. They won't be able to understand their communities. They won't be able to understand their histories. They won't be able to understand why we are where we are and how we can affect where we're going. And so for me, it's, it, it's always about a civic education. It's always a civic project to teach about religion. This is not about proselytization. It's not a ploy to make people more religious, less religious, differently religious. It's about creating American citizens who are committed to the highest ideals of our country and are equipped with the knowledge and skills necessary to live up to those ideals. And so uh, what we see is that there's a great deal of buy-in right now from, from public schools to actually teach about religion. In different parts of the country, you have different challenges. And that's not always in the divide that we often talk about, sort of a northern, southern divide or regional divides. It also comes up in urban, suburban, rural contexts. You have very different experiences with religious communities and, and, and civic communities who are more or less willing to teach about religion. And sometimes that's because they are quite a homogenous community and don't necessarily want to teach about other religious traditions. Sometimes it's because they're very heterogeneous communities and they don't want to upset the careful balance between these different religious communities by offending one or another or offending people who are not religious. And that's very important. Um, but we're seeing that the, this is a moment where more and more people are willing to, to teach about religion across the board. And so my question for you, I do a lot of religious literacy work, which is intimately tied with religious liberty work. But with the BJC, do you see a divide? Are you seeing resistance to the kind of work that you're doing? Is there a, a divide between regions or between urban, suburban, rural? Or is it across the board acceptance? Or, or is it suspicion across the board? I, I'm curious for your experience. There's definitely a divide. There's a divide regionally. I grew up in what is considered the Bible Belt. There's a way of living in those communities that is to the core of who those people are. And to suggest anything outside of that, not only is questioning almost of their faith, but it's questioning of who they are and to their core. It's, it's questioning their entire lifestyle, their entire what they've grown up um, believing, as one of my professors used to say, um, questioning their mama and them theology. Like, mama told me this. This can't be wrong. And so it, it's, it, it can be a crack in that. But I, I think the biggest divide, actually, when I talk to students, because we have students that come to the BJC to actually get um, education, training, um, just as you guys do over at the museum, what I see the divide is in the age and our more seasoned uh, people and our younger people. Our younger people are, they're not so much mad about people being different than them or thinking different than them or believing different than them. You know, it's kind of cool for them. It's like, okay, do you. Doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. As long as you don't do something to harm me. Um, and so I, I, I believe that that's the bright light I see for the future that we have young people that really don't care about what your religion is as long as you're not bothering bothering them. Now, the maybe downside of that is faith sometimes isn't seen as important in that community because unfortunately they've seen some of the bad things that faith has done. And I think for people that of faith, we need to recognize those bad things, um, be upfront about those bad things, but also engage in the conversation, not step back. And so that's the biggest difference I, I see. Younger people are willing to have this conversation a little more than our more seasoned people. And until we can get both of them to be in that same place, um, we're still going to have that problem. I would like to address the, the urban and suburban aspects of it. 
I think just being honest, growing up in the black church, issues and um, politics have always been a part of the church because usually the pastor may have been the most educated person in the community. And so the things that were going on in the community, the pastor wants to talk about them. And that's fine. Um, churches should be able to talk about issues. Churches should be able to talk about politics. They shouldn't be partisan. Um, they shouldn't be the First Baptist Church of Democrat or First Baptist Church of Republican. But they should talk about the issues, and it should be a church that's alive. And so I just had to, to throw that part in there because it, it, it makes a difference um, in the community that you're, that you're in. We, we kind of talked about being you, being able to even study UK, study here. And I, I know the UK doesn't have the First Amendment and other places don't have the First Amendment. But what, do you, what would you say the biggest difference is um, about studying religion or talking about religious liber literacy in the United States and in other places? The United States is incredibly unique. And I, I don't know that Americans fully appreciate that. And I don't know that other countries fully understand what the implications of the First Amendment are. So generally, people think of the United Kingdom, of Italy, Germany, having quite robust protections for religious freedom. And the United Kingdom in particular is the one I'm most familiar with. I studied there briefly. And what was surprising to me was that the way that the church-state relationship is set up in the United Kingdom is incredibly different of course, from the United States. And even though they think of us as peers and in, in, in champions of religious freedom, a lot of the policies that are put in place in the United Kingdom would be very surprising in the United States and would actually offend the sensibilities of many Americans who are committed to religious liberty. So of course, in the United Kingdom, there is a state church, right? The Church of England is the state church. And recently, there's been a shift in the rhetoric in public schools, or, or what we would consider public schools in the United Kingdom, to not just teach about the Church of England and the theologies of the Church of England, but to teach about religion in general, and the fact that religion there is seen as a social good. So there's a specific protection of religion, religious communities, there's an ethos that we should learn about religion through the lens of faith or philosophy and ethics. And all of that is really important, but it gives the impression that there is a favoring of religion over non-religion. And often there is a favoring institutionally in many ways of the Church of England. Um, there are spaces reserved in the House of Lords for clergy members in the Church of England, the, the sovereign, the, the, the queen and uh, the queen Queen's husband are considered protectors of, of religion in the, in the Church of England. And so it's very different. And I remember studying with someone at the University of Cambridge who is a champion of religion, religious studies education in what we would call K-12 schools there. And she really found it hard to understand what it means for us to teach about religion in an academically rigorous way that doesn't promote one religion over another, that takes what we would call a religious studies approach, which is more grounded, I would say, in sociology, psychology, anthropology, than the, the theology-oriented approach that they take there. And so I think we're, we're very lucky in the United States. As much as I respect colleagues in the UK and the system that they set up and the way that that works there, I think the United States provides a unique environment for people of all religions and none to flourish because it protects their right to be religious in the way that they want to be or to not be religious. And it allows them to, to grow as they want to grow, to express themselves as they want to, and for schools to really be I struggle with the word neutrality, but but more open spaces for 
children from whatever background they come from and for parents to raise their children within specific moral, religious, um, or, or, or non-religious communities. And so th that, that is, is a major difference. The United Kingdom is, is a different system than ours. And I'm curious for you, if, you know, you see differences in the United States. So we, we talked about the regional divides. We talked about urban, urban, suburban, rural, but also in the Baptist community. Do you see differences within the Baptist community at, in the way that people approach religious liberty? And before you also mentioned the relationship between religious liberty and civil liberties. What, what's, what are the different ways that members of your community engage with those different contexts? You know, earlier we talked about the four fragile freedoms with Baptist. And part of that is I, sometimes I'm, I don't know if the word is envious or jealous of the hierarchy of other uh, religions and their structure. Because Baptist church can believe whatever they want to believe. The, you know, I, my mom was a member of First McCoy Baptist Church. Well, down the street was Second McCoy Baptist Church. And so growing up, I thought McCoy just must have been a, a great fella to have two churches. But, you know, that was a split. And so with Baptists, yes, we, we all have different. Um, there are certain Baptist churches I, I would not go to, even though it says Baptist. I would feel more comfortable in a, um, a Catholic church than certain Baptist churches because of, you know, the belief, the doctrine, um, whether it's discrimination or how they do. So we have different churches, um, uh, different in some of our churches ordain women. Some of the Baptist churches don't. So we have differences. And, and actually, one of the uh, hardest things about my job sometimes is defending those uh, differences that I don't believe in because that really is religious liberty. When you're able to say, hey, I don't believe how you believe, but I will fight to protect you being able to believe it because I don't want somebody coming over taking over my religious belief. I think that's a that's a great point to wrap up our conversation on, and I, I can't express enough how grateful I am to having both of you in the studio here with me. I feel like it's been such a, a rich conversation, and you know, just being able to sit back and listen to the two pros go back and forth. You know, this is a we're, we're we've got two skilled facilitators here, dear listeners, and so so uh, no uh, no surprise that that we had a a. a truly educational experience um, having that back and forth. And that's really, you know, this experiment that we're trying to do here with Interfaith-ish, this is what it's about, taking that time to really listen um, deeply to what um, our friends and neighbors have to say so we can have a better understanding of, of their perspective, of where they're coming from, and really, frankly, how to do this, how to do this work. Um, as you were saying, Ben, you know, before, I think it's it's something that in a lot of cases, people don't even recognize about our own communities um, the, 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 the privileged opportunity that we have to be in, in communion with one another in, in our neighborhoods and so forth with such a diversity of citizens. And, um, and then, you know, what you were saying, Charles, you know, about this opportunity to educate this next generation really about these fundamental freedoms that we have so that we are really informed about um, the the rights that we have and and really the ways in which we should be engaging with others and 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 being true to the core doctrines of our of our country um, much less you know our our our, uh, our our religious convictions about you know for those of us who who have them or moral convictions around treating each other with respect and dignity and so forth so um, before we get out of here I just want to uh, take an opportunity to ask if quickly you guys have any resources that you'd like to share uh, that for folks who are are uh, interested. And, and I'll just remind our, our listeners that we've been um, talking with Charles Watson of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and Ben Marcus with the Religious Freedom Center. Um, and if you guys have any um, uh, resources that you think listeners should know about if they're interested in these topics. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to share those. The Religious Freedom Center is really here for you, for, for communities to 
have the resources that they need to engage in respectful dialogue about issues that are important to all of us. So we have resources specifically built for religious and civic leaders, for educators, and for business people who are really committed to making their communities more inclusive of people of all religions and none, and of teaching one another about religion in, in rigorous ways. So if you go to our website, religiousfreedomcenter.org, there are a variety of free downloadable resources for these different communities. We also have online professional development for teachers who want to log on on their own time and for free learn about what it means to teach about religion in, in academic and constitutional ways. And we also come to you. So I'm really pleased to be on a community radio station. We want to work in this community to help you navigate really difficult questions. And so we've started offering community-based workshops where communities can reach out to us and we'll go to you and think about what, what kinds of resources you need to tackle the issues that you're seeing as challenges or opportunities within your community. And we are happy to, to work with you to put on workshops in your community or at the museum on issues related to religious liberty, religious literacy, and civil dialogue. So if you see a need in your community, if you're a religious and civic leader, if you're an educator, if you're a business person, and you want to train and equip yourself and your community to, to talk about these issues, we are here for you. Great. Yeah, Charles? And, you know, on our website, bjconline.org, all our resources are there. Make sure you uh, subscribe and receive our report from the Capitol of our bi-monthly magazine that keeps you abreast of what's going on containing religious liberty. And also visit our, our website to um, bring a group to us so we can bring groups to the BJC or have the BJC come to you. So all of that information is on our website, again, at bjconline.org. Great. Well, thank you again, Charles Watson Jr. and Ben Marcus. And um, thank you all for listening in to Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. That's a wrap. And I want to give a shout out and thank you to my fellow uh, Interfaith astronauts. Again, my team behind the scenes, Miranda Hovemeyer and Sue Katz Miller. And as always, a special shout out to Jeff Philosopher for hooking us up with our theme music. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending your time with us. If you want to let us know about interfaith-ish that you wish to dish, you can write us an email at interfaith-ish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks on Wednesday, May 30th at 9 a.m. with our next live episode. As you may know, this week marks the start of Ramadan, the holy month of fasting for Muslims, and we'll be looking at that practice as well as the role of interfaith collaborators in combating Islamophobia as the subject of our next episode. So be sure to join us Wednesday, May 30th at 9 a.m. right here. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM Tacoma Radio for great music and programs seven days a week streaming online at tacomaradio.org go there for full program schedule up next is borderlines with bobby hill on the people's voice of choice tacoma radio w-o-w-d 94.3 fm